Amen. Our living hope. You know, don't, we don't want to forget our annual theme for this year, hope for everyday life. And it comes in the living hope. Because there's a lot of other things we kind of think about when we talk about hope, like this weekend. Now, guys, maybe even some of the wives, how many of you recognize this is week one of the NFL this week, right? Okay, yep, all right. Who's excited about that? Why? Because everyone believes they can have hope for their team this week. Everyone thinks if everything just goes right, no injuries to our star players, the ball's just going to bounce in all the right directions, so we're going to win. Every fan has some level of hope that this is the year their team goes to the Super Bowl. But how much hope do you really have about that? Let's be honest with ourselves, because it depends an awful lot on who we're listening to. You know, as a Viking fan, I really do want to believe that Kirk Cousins throwing to Justin Jefferson should be enough to get them all the way. But then there's folks who are going to speak into my ear. You remember their defense really stunk last year. But, but, but they've got a new defensive coach this year. It should be just fine, right? He'll fix all those problems. Well, sure, I can have hope in that. But really, I have no control over it, no impact upon it, and really it's just something that I wish might happen. And there's hope. But that's not a hope that matters, is it? Thankfully, the way the Vikings play week to week has no eternal consequences. And also, based on my aversion to betting anything more than a Diet Coke, well, it has no financial consequences on me either. Are you thankful, though, that that's, that the kind of, that's not the kind of hope that God places before us? Last week, I offered a definition for biblical hope that author Paul Tripp proposes. Biblical hope equals a confident expectation of a guaranteed outcome that changes the way you live. When we look at the hope in our lives, sometimes our hope is weak because we don't have the confidence in the outcome. Now, that would have been the case, too, for the early church. Certainly when the early church was under the attack of false teachers who were trying to erode their confidence in the truth that they'd been hearing. And as a result, Peter, at the end of his life, wrote a letter to his fellow believers who were under the pressure of false teaching because he had to ask, how would they know what was true? How would they know what to believe? And at we have to ask, what was it that was causing them so many issues? What were these false teachers trying to claim and push upon them? Well, by looking at the whole content of Second Peter, we can begin to deduce some of those questions that the original readers might have been dealing with. Can I trust the Bible? Really? I mean, other people have read the Old Testament, and they came to different conclusions than what you're telling me. So therefore, why should I believe what you're saying now? And for us, why should I believe the New Testament? Is Jesus really returning? You know, it's taken an awful long time. Come on, really? Is he supposed to be coming back? Why is he waiting? Is God really going to judge every person? Seriously? What kind of a God would do that? Well, those may have been the objections before the early church. I don't think they've changed much as far as the objections that folks have to the church and to God's Word today. 
You know, biblical Christianity is under these same basic attacks. And that's why this book of 2 Peter that we're studying verse by verse is so important and helpful for us because it's, and it's also why we've titled this walkthrough as Growing in Grace and Knowledge. Last week, Pastor David helped us to see that Peter didn't just begin his letter by coming out with all the complaints and grumblings about what these false teachers were saying, but rather he brought the positive statements. Through God's divine power, we have everything we need to live a godly life. Now, that's a mouthful, and it's significant to the way we live. Because what Peter was saying to his readers was telling them that they did not need to seek elsewhere. We have what we need. We don't need to look elsewhere for additional answers. God has already provided it. And now regardless of the time in which we live, the circumstances we face, or even the blessings we may be receiving, we have everything we need through God's power to live a godly life. Do you believe that? I mean, really. Do you really believe it? Are you convinced that through His power, He has given you magnificent promises? He's helped you to escape the world's thinking and given you the strength to grow in your character in discernible ways so that you will be useful and fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. I hope that as we looked at last week's passage, it caused us this week to rejoice and seek to live that out. Well, today we're going to continue to dig in because Peter continues his positive argument in verse 16. And so I'm going to ask if you would to open your Bibles up to the letter of Second Peter. If you're using the Bible that's in the chairs in front of you, that'll be on page 183 in the back section of that Bible. Now, looking back to how we ended last week's passion or passage, from the verses 12 through 15, it's important for us to understand what Peter is standing upon as we now step into these next verses. Because he'd said in verse 12, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. And then in verse 15, he tells them, After my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter had resolved before his death to remind his readers of the truth of the gospel and their need to live virtuously as a response, not as a means to salvation. And like Peter's original readers, we too need to be reminded because there are certain truths that are essential to our Christian faith. Now, Peter's not going to cover all of these things that I'm going to throw up on the screen in this letter, but these are critical. And there's no room for negotiation on these truths. These are the foundations of the faith that we begin with the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. God's Word is true. We believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God and the virgin birth through Mary. He is man, fully man. And because of those two things, he was able to be the substitutionary atoning work on the cross for you and me. And then God showed us through his physical resurrection and personal bodily return that God was satisfied with his sacrifice. These truths are critical. If you reject one of these elements, you no longer have biblical Christianity. And now our text today addresses two of these fundamentals of the faith. And that's why we titled this morning's message, The Hope in the Promised Return of Jesus 
and in the inspired word. And so if you will, follow along with me as I read from 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16. For this is the word of the Lord. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is the matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so with those truths in mind, I'd like us to consider three positive arguments why we can count on the Bible's testimony. So let's get right to it. The first argument is that that Peter is stating is why they should be listening to him. Because his testimony is an eyewitness testimony. Verse 16 introduces the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now here, for we, the we of verse 16 is not just some rhetorical we, like I might use in some days, but it means we, the apostles. The churches to whom Peter was writing were founded upon the apostles' teaching, and one of the truths which they taught explained about the second coming of Jesus Christ, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. When Jesus returns, he will return in power. And his return will be glorious. The Gospels and the letters of the New Testament point to his return over and over again. And yet, there were still false teachers who wanted the people to believe otherwise. And so Peter would address their questions more fully in chapter 3. But even here, it's clear how he is showing that some oppose the return of Christ. But think about it, it really is no wonder that they opposed that. The apostles were teaching and recording in God's Word that when Jesus returns, He'll destroy His enemies. He'll take His children home, coming in glory, majesty, and power. He'll come to make all things right. So what goes in heaven will go on earth. And oh, by the way, He's going to do it in His own timing. And He'll come when we are unsuspecting. And then... Jesus will receive the glory and the honor that is due only to him. But if a person doesn't like the idea of the Lord destroying his enemy, if they don't like the idea of God being completely in control and even on the timeline coming when he desires, then, well, they'll find reasons to argue that it will not happen. Now, one of the arguments that they used is very clear right from the beginning of verse 16. They tried to look at him and say, you just made all that up, didn't you? You just used cleverly devised tales. Your belief 
is just to help you feel better because you need a crutch. You're weak-minded, and so you just invented this story, didn't you? Have you ever had someone say this or something similar this to you? Maybe you were passionately sharing the gospel. You were sharing how you came to an understanding that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and there's nothing that you could do for yourself. And you're sharing the beauty of the cross and Christ's work in redeeming you back to the Heavenly Father and why this provides you so much hope. You share the hope today based on the promises of God, even talking about how you've got trials and hard things going on in your life, but because of God, you have peace in that. And they politely listen, but then they look at you and say, that's great. I'm glad Christianity works for you. That's not for me. It's a nice way of saying you're following cleverly devised tales. Instead of trying to argue with you, they just simply say, eh, that's not for me because I can't believe it. More likely what they're saying, though, is I don't want to imagine God actually being in control of all these things. I don't want to imagine God actually holding me accountable for my life. I just want to live a full life and then die. But Peter says, no, no way. That is not true. We are not looking at cleverly devised tales because we are eyewitnesses of the majesty. And more specifically, we are eyewitnesses of the transfiguration. Peter takes us back to the transfiguration and says, were the false teachers there with us on the mountain when Jesus revealed himself in his glory? I don't think so. We saw with our eyes, we heard with our ears the Father say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The honor and the glory at the beginning of verse 17 is the glorious revealing of Jesus Christ, along with God's verbal affirmation of His Son. And Peter says that we, and that specifically is Peter, James, and John who were there for the transfiguration, were eyewitnesses of His majesty, saw the Father giving honor and glory to Jesus at the transfiguration, and that's exactly what will happen again at His second coming. He will have all the glory and honor that is due to Him. Now you might be thinking, you're going, wait a minute, Rod, you're kind of stretching this. Hold your horses. You're talking about the transfiguration that happened 30 years before Peter actually wrote this letter. Well, I can understand why you might be asking how I get there in this passage when Peter's pointing backwards, but yet I'm pointing to something that is forward, even still forward today, 2,000 years later. So to put this together, we need to see the close connection between the transfiguration and the second coming. To explore this connection, we're going to look at the transfiguration passages from each of the Gospels where it's represented. So first, we're going to look at Matthew. Matthew, where it says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father. And then at verse 28, it says, Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. And then in each of the Gospels, it describes six days later. 
okay? There's a time that it passes. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up on the high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them. We say the same testimony in the Gospel of Mark. Truly I say to you, some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Six days later, later, Jesus took Peter and James and John. Even in Luke, we see this shorter, but it says, but I say to you truthfully, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Even John, though John was present, he didn't choose to include the transfiguration in his gospel. And thus, every account of the transfiguration recorded is preceded by Jesus' statement that some standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then, about a week later, the transfiguration It gave Peter, James, and John a sneak peek. God was revealing to them at that time what they would see in the future at the second coming of Christ. Amazing, isn't it? Peter's telling his reader, do you remember what we told you about the transfiguration? Wow! It foreshadows how Jesus will powerfully return in His second coming. And we saw it. We heard God's voice. Now that Jesus came the first time to redeem his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he plans to return in power and glory to claim his own and vanquish his enemies. And we've been spreading this good news, and we will continue to do so because this is not some cleverly devised tale. Peter's testimony is an eyewitness testimony And yet some, still some even today, simply don't want to believe that Jesus is returning or that God will hold anyone accountable for anything. But what they're really saying is, I don't want to consider what happens after death because that would force me to answer questions about my own life that I really don't think I'm going to like the answers to. And yet, Look at how those same people might even respond when somebody dies in their life. They'd talk about them and they'd say, rest in peace. You know, the world teaches something different when we say rest in peace because what they're talking about is something more like an eternal sleep. Friends, don't be deceived. To stop here would ignore the truth. The Bible teaches that either we rest in the presence of our Savior for eternity, or we suffer for our rebellion awaiting the final judgment and then an eternal torment. There is no rest in peace as our culture would typically define it. And Peter's telling us, do you know how I know? Because I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. Peter's saying, I told you about it, and now I'm writing it down for you. He's saying, trust my memory. But let me just say a couple things about memory, because that would be the other thing we'd look at, and we'd say, there were 30 years in between when Peter saw the transfiguration, and he wrote it in the second letter of Peter. Now, I don't know about all of you, but I can tell you, if I try to look back 30 years in my life, I'd have a tough time. 
I have a tough time telling you exactly what I said or ate three days ago. But there are certain memories in our lives that are so significant you can never forget them, right? How many of you can remember exactly where you were when the shuttle Challenger blew up? I can still see the TV screen that I saw at the ROTC unit at the University of Minnesota. And that's a long time ago. How about the attacks on 9-11, which we're going to be remembering tomorrow? Do you remember where you were? But can you remember what you said three weeks ago? There's other things in our lives, too. I can remember when our family lived in Hawaii and we had started attending Island Family Church or Island Family Christian Church, I can't remember all of the sermons that the pastor spoke at that church. But I can remember one very specifically because that's the day he was preaching on procrastination and God was putting on my heart. I've given you everything you need for life and godliness and you think you know, but you haven't given your life. And that's the day I stood up and gave my life to Christ Jesus. I can't forget that. In other words, I'll always remember I may not always remember what I said three weeks ago, but those moments, I will always remember them. And I think Peter is making the argument that he will never forget the day he saw Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. We know now because of that what it looks like for Jesus to return, and therefore we continue to preach that Jesus is coming back because we've been given a sight of it in that moment. It's interesting how Second Peter is also, it's a mirror of what uh, the psalmist said a thousand years earlier in Psalm 2. This is a royal psalm, often referring to Jesus, but it said, As for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That mirrors very, very well with what happened at the transfiguration. And so for us, we're not listening to Peter's first-hand eyewitness testimony sitting around a dinner table somewhere, but we're reading his letter to the churches, trying to understand the connection in the Gospels to Peter's writing in this letter, and even trying to understand it in light of Old Testament revelation. So again, we ask, why do I have hope in the second coming? Why do I have hope in the Word of God? And our first argument that we've been walking through so far for why we can believe the testimony of the Bible is that the truth comes from eyewitnesses. We can believe it. A second reason to trust the accuracy of the Bible is because it comes from prophetic testimony. Look how it continues in verse 9. So we have the prophetic word made more, made more sure. How could the prophetic word become more sure? Because of the understanding of the apostles. And what does he say for us? The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The prophetic word is almost certainly a reference to the Old Testament and probably most specifically to the passages that look forward to the Messiah in both his suffering and his exaltation. But let's ask ourselves, what is Peter doing here as he walks through this? Is he saying that his eyewitness testimony was not good enough or that something else is needed on top of that? I don't believe that's his purpose. 
I think he's continuing to connect. I think there's a better understanding based on how Peter is drawing these truths together. Because Peter reminded us that he was an eyewitness of the transfiguration happened. And now he is telling us that that transfiguration proves that there is a second coming as stated in the Old Testament. Peter and the rest of the apostles were not, only the one, were not the only ones reading the Old Testament, though. There were other religious leaders who would read these same texts. And, you know, that's true today. And we don't all come to the same conclusion. For example, you could go to Purdue and take a class on the Bible. And the professor who's leading that class, they'll come in, and they may come in with the assumption that the Bible is just simply an amazing literary product. It's just a book. There also remains a Jewish community around us reading these same texts, and yet they reject Jesus as the Messiah. But what Peter is saying here is that the transfiguration shows that the apostles who wrote the New Testament got the Old Testament correct. Thus, there is a right way, and there's also a wrong way to read the Bible. Those who read the Old Testament as if it's just a bunch of cute fairy tales, well, they're not understanding it correctly, are they? Or those who believe in a coming future king, but they deny that he was a suffering servant, well, they're equally wrong. What's so delightful about this passage, and I'm sorry I don't have the time today to be able to unpack all of these things about the suffering servant in the Gospels and how it all comes together in this conclusion, but what's delightful about this passage is that what Peter is saying is the apostles got it right, and we can believe. Jesus came for the first time to suffer, to die, and give his life as a ransom for many. And he's coming back. And we got a glimpse of it so that we can tell you about it and you can have hope in what is yet to come. Peter is saying, remember when we wanted to build that altar to Moses and Elijah? God made it clear to us, just Jesus. And then at his coming, he will receive the full honor and glory. Just Jesus. Jesus, the Old Testament, and our interpretation of the Old Testament is the one to believe. Then, when we see that it's the very prophetic Word of God, it's not arrogant of us to say there is only one way to understand this. Because it's not about me. It's God's Word. God said it. And if God said it, I believe it. And if it's true, then I'm going to follow it. And that's what it means for the believer today when we say that we must pay careful attention to the Word. Peter's saying that the Word, the Scripture, this prophetic Word serves as a lamp shining in a dark place, and we would do well to pay careful attention. You know, I often ask the question, whether it's in counseling or other times, based on what you heard on Sunday, what did it change on Monday, how will you pay attention to the Word so that it has an impact on your life? Now, I'm painfully aware that we as pastors, as we come on applications to uh, Scripture, that sometimes we can come up with some pretty boring ones, you know, like, read your Bible more. You want that one? 
Should I give you that one? Because I know you heard me say it recently where I said, okay, I want you all to take how many days of the week you're reading the Bible? Add two. Okay? You're doing well on that, right? Okay? So if you did your two already, add one more. How about that? But let's be honest. We want to, do we want to acknowledge maybe we haven't heeded that as well as we should and we need to pay careful attention because the word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By living according to the Word. And so I don't want to simply say to you, read your Bible more. But folks, we all do need it. I can tell you this truthfully as we walk. Recently I had an individual that uh, I just, as we sat down and spoke with them about what they believed, they told me they knew all the Christian answers. They'd heard it a million times. That was hard to listen to because I was really impressed by that because I'm confident I haven't heard it a million times. But, but my heart was really broken because after just a few questions and looking at the depth of their answers, they couldn't answer the questions that were truly upon their heart because even though they thought they knew the Bible, they really did not. And so, friends, sometimes we think we know the Bible better than we actually do. And so let me give you a very practical step that you could take. Now I've talked in the past about having reading plans to read from Matthew through Revelation or a whole year to be able to read through the Bible book by book. I want to challenge you with something that's even a little bit more that will help you grow in your knowledge of the Word. I want you to start at a point in the Bible. You can start at Genesis. You can start at Matthew. You can start somewhere else if you want to. But I want you to go one book at a time. While you are reading the book, I want you to write an outline. What's the outline of the book that you're reading? And then when you're done with that book, before you move on to the next one, you get 25 words. I want you to summarize the meaning that the original writer had of that book in 25 words. And if you do that slowly, one by one, eventually you're going to have 66 statements that tell you what the Bible means. And do you think at that point you're going to know God's Word more? You're going to know this prophetic Word, paying attention to a lamp shining in a dark place. After all, we need the Lord's Word to navigate this world. We need it to have the face to cur- to, or the the courage to face the attacks that are upon these truths. When we talk about things like marriage and family, we need God's Word to help us to be able to resist the temptations in our lives, the temptations like alcohol or drugs or sexual temptations or just simply a temptation to anger in my heart. We need the Lord's Word for that. And we need it to live wisely and experience God's blessing. And we need it today, and we need it every day until He returns. But verse 19 reminds us that we actually won't need it forever. We need it until the day dawns, and that equals the day of Jesus' return. Because at that time, Jesus arising in our hearts means that we will fully know Him. In that day, I'll no longer need the Bible because we too will be eyewitnesses of the majesty and the glory of our King, standing before Him in His presence that we might know Him. Consider what John said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know. We know 
that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. It'll no longer be about how well do I understand the words of God. I will stand and be able to know God. And when I think about the return of Christ that allows that, mind-blowing. Because I've never lived in that world, and my imagination is just too narrow to be able to understand the fullness of that glory. But then I will know the Lord perfectly. There's no need for a communion celebration for then because there will be no more death. There will be no more pain or tears, no more trials or trouble. Do you believe that? So why can we have hope in the second coming and in the Bible? Well, because it's the eyewitness testimony of men. And it's the prophetic testimony of God's Word given to us. And now for today, our third and final argument this morning is because it's also the Holy Spirit's testimony. For now, this, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter lays down the gauntlet here in one of the most important passages of the Bible, and if this were the end of the letter, this would be a beautiful time for a mic drop. That it is God's Word. You know, some authors like to focus on the origin. That's to say that prophecy is from God. Seems like that should be enough, shouldn't it? And then some others also like to bring in the element of understanding or interpretation. In other words, determining who gets to decide what that prophetic word means. But Peter is not only emphasizing that the Old Testament prophecy came from God, but also he's telling us it's the New Testament apostles who understood it correctly. And he helps us to understand that why. And it gives us the answer to some questions. For example, why do we believe the New Testament belongs at the end of the Old Testament? Orthodox Jews reject the New Testament as given by God. We disagree with them. Why do we reject the Apocrypha, yet the Catholic Church includes it and even brings it into their services? Why do we reject the myriad of other Gospels or letters that were written around the first century? Well, this is the pivotal question. Why do we limit our Bible to the 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament and reject all other attempts to, re- or to remove, remove some or add others? Why? Because the Bible is not the product of human will. Peter uses these verses to show that his interpretation of Old Testament prophecy, namely that Jesus will return in glory and power, He's reinforced that through the transfiguration where he saw and heard. And he's showing that it's the correct interpretation because it came from God. Just as the original prophecies themselves were not a product of human will. Think about it. Around 1500 B.C., who would have looked back at the people of Israel in Egypt and come up with a grand scheme to foreshadow a coming Messiah? Who would have invented the stories that we have in Genesis 1 through 11? They wouldn't make sense. What human would want to invent his Savior as one who would have to suffer? Who would create a Savior that we would reject? What man would write then 
also that we are so depraved that we need to kill the king. Peter says none of this is the product of human ingenuity and desire or cleverly devised tales because the Bible is a product of the Holy Spirit moving the authors. You'll hear your pastors here at Faith talking about the, the phrase, the Bible is inspired. We get this from 2 Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And yet, you look, and when you read the 66 books of the Bible, you find that they use a variety of words and language. You hear differences in the writing styles from one book to the next. This is why some people argue that the Bible can't be true because it's not consistent in that way. But we know that that's not true based on 2 Timothy, based on 2 Peter, then adding the element of process. And so we ask, How is it that the Bible is inspired by God, given the involvement of men? It's just what he said. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. This is such a beautiful truth because it explains how people could be involved in the writing of this truthful book of God's Word without messing it up. And in doing so, Peter provides one of the most important passages of what we believe knowing that the Bible is true. It helps us answer those questions. How do I know that the 27 books of the New Testament form the proper closure to the 39 books of the Old Testament? Because the prophets under, or the apostles understood the prophetic word of the Old Testament. They understood it correctly. And in the New Testament, they write accurately. Why? Because it's the Spirit that is actively working in them to ensure that it's right. You know, this is not the only example also of God and the Holy Spirit working in this way. 2 Peter 1, verses 20-21 is very similar to a passage in the Gospels that describes Jesus in the Incarnation when it says Mary was overshadowed by the Spirit. It goes back to one of those fundamentals of the faith again. And we see we had a problem. How can Mary, a sinner, be involved in the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, without corrupting Him? Well, some would find they solved that by simply saying that, well, Mary must have been perfect then. We would look to God's Word to find the truth. We solve it by looking at the text and noticing that it was the Holy Spirit's direct involvement. Those who wrote the Bible got it right because the Holy Spirit was with them and so They got it right. And so when we think of the Bible as inspired, it means the product, the words, they are the words of God, and it means the Spirit's work was the process of ensuring that it was all accurate. And then out of this text, we can also see one more thing that gives us an assurance of why we believe in all of this, because the whole story fits together. In studying this passage, it actually took me some time early on to understand why Peter used the second coming as the key theological concept to focus on the inspiration of Scripture. And now I do believe one of those answers is because false teachers were trying to deny his second coming, but could there be more? Peter wanted us to find our hope in the inspired word. Think back to that definition I gave at the beginning, biblical hope, a confident expectation of a guaranteed outcome that changes the way we live. Well, I want to throw out a suggestion 
to why Peter says we can have hope. Peter looks at the second coming as the fulfillment of the storyline, the culmination of God's plan, the guaranteed outcome of God's redemptive plan. And as such, what more important area could Peter have discussed in this passage? What better truth could he have used than pointed to God's final step in his plan? In other words, Peter uses the end to show that the Bible has it all, beginning to end, giving us hope in the return of Jesus and in the inspired word that can change the way we live. Now, this message is primarily about the hope available to us in the inspired word of God. And as we've unpacked this passage, I've suggested three arguments on why we can believe the testimony of the Bible. Because it comes from eyewitness testimonies, because it comes from the prophetic testimony, and because it comes from the Holy Spirit's testimony. But it also highlights the importance of how we understand the second coming of Christ and the inspired words focused on the end of times because there is hope in Jesus' return. If you're with us here today and you're listening to all this and you're saying, but I've still got questions. I've got questions about God's Word and why I should believe it. I've got questions about Jesus and who He is and why He did what He did. I've got questions about God and why He would hold me accountable and yet have the grace to want to redeem me back to Himself. If that's you today, I just want to offer. Don't leave today without asking the questions that are upon your heart because God's inspired Word can provide the hope in the answers that we need. And whether it's one of the pastors, myself, or someone around you here, we want to walk with you to see that same hope that God has given us because we can see what is to come. Jesus' second coming. And we can see that God has given us everything we need in His inspired Word. And so I pray, may the Lord help us and have it to, great, to have great confidence in the Word. A commitment to knowing it so that we might spot the false teaching that's around us and that we might be ready for the return of Christ as demonstrated by the life that we would choose to live today. Folks, I'm so grateful that you are here today and I pray that this is a blessing because the Word is a blessing to us all. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you today. Lord, so thankful. Lord, that you have exalted your Son and made Him known to us. Lord, that you sent your Son that you could redeem our sinful hearts back to you. And Lord, that you have revealed your plan through your inspired word that we might have hope. Hope in knowing the guaranteed outcome of your redemptive plan, the second coming of Christ, when all things will be made right, when you will wipe away every tear, no more death, no more pain. But yet, Lord, we walk these days and there is still pain. There is still suffering. Lord, help us to be able to find the truth and the hope for everyday life in your sufficient word. Lord, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.